In our latest episode, we talk about The Killing of a Sacred Deer, 2017, starring Colin Farrell. Our discussion of this movie leads us into a deep dive on the nature of art. Does art require an appreciative audience, or can an artist make art with no audience? You'll find out as we discuss that, as well as the myth of Iphigenia, for all you Greek myth fans out there. Come and give it a listen. John? John, I saw a deer last night near the campfire. You saw it at night? Normally they come out during the day. No, deer deer are nocturnal, actually. Uh, I did not know that. Yeah, well, we're learning things in the wilds, and uh, I killed this deer. Jesus, dude. What'd you use? I used my teeth. I walked up to it. I crept up on all fours, and Mm -hmm. I just buried my fangs into its neck. I felled it. I believe that's the the proper hunting term. This was uh, what two o'clock in the morning. What time was this? I was yeah, it was about two. Yeah, I don't like deer, and uh, this one was getting up in our business, so I had to I had to kill it. Reminded me of a movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny is I, I woke up around that same time and uh, just kind of groggily went to uh, use the bathroom, and I saw a shimmering mm. of what looked like a naked man. running through the woods and i i thought it was a dream but turns out it was uh you were on the hunt yeah fantasy actually yeah i do strip completely nude when i go out for my nightly hunts and it does shimmer Mm. the killing of a sacred deer by yorgos lanthimos ever heard of it he's greek i have seen the movie yeah he's he made a few movies this is the only one I'm familiar with. Yeah, he made one called The Lobster, which I've never seen, but I kind of want to see it just because it's called The Lobster. Put it in the queue. This movie starred Colin Farrell of God knows what fame. He has a familiar face, but I can't think of what else he's been in. He was in the Miami Vice remake. Classic. Also Nicole Kidman of Hot Lady, who's grown a bit old fame, but still still looks good. There's a, I assume, a body devil, or we saw her nude, mm. I'm not sure. I saw her nude a couple of times. Well, I just didn't know if it was a body double. Well, they have two kids, Colin and Nicole. Uh, they're both doctors. Very successful family. The kids' names are Anna, a young lady, and Bob, a son. Just for clarity, the children aren't doctors. No. The phrasing of that. <laughs> it seemed like there was a six-year-old doctor. The son, though, Bob, is on the road to being a doctor. He wants to be... A doctor? Yeah. The uh, the wife is a optometrist? Ophthalmologist. Oh. Yeah, the wrong op. And dad is a cardiologist, I believe. A heart doctor. The movie opens with a some kind of pretentious-seeming classical music and film of a open-heart surgery operation, which was quite striking. And then the movie closes with more sort of operatic choir music, sort of making a little, a little cycle there. I found... It's slightly disturbing that when watching the heart, I did not recognize it as a human heart. What do you think it was a human heart? I thought, is this a human heart or a pig heart? Or mm. uh, maybe it was the deer heart that you had uh, in your mouth. I, I wasn't mm. sure. I thought, wow, I'm carrying around this organ and I've never seen it. Yeah, you know, we have one of those and it's been operating for decades now and mm-hmm. don't even don't even know what it looks like. I have no clue. I couldn't even draw it other than the... Typical Valentine heart. Well, this cardiologist, he lost a patient 
and he doesn't really remember losing the patient. There's a scene where he claims that he's never lost a patient, and it's always the fault, whenever a patient is lost, of the anesthesiologist. And uh, he's made friends with a young teenager named Martin. The movie doesn't really explain what the origin of their relationship is. Why does this middle-aged doctor hang out with this kind of awkward teenager boy all the time? You get the impression that he's like an illegitimate son, maybe from an affair or from a, of a previous marriage that's kind of not known to Nicole Kidman. All the characters in this movie are united in the fact that they are incredibly chill about everything. That was my overriding impression they they don't raise their voices they don't show outward emotional you know outbursts except for that one scene in the kitchen they speak in complete sentences with very few verbal contractions i assume that's obviously intentional but i don't know what we're meant to do with all that did you have any uh, reaction to the to the spoken dialogue the main characters had a flatness Void of emotion, and I thought maybe this was just the world that the film occupied, that everyone was like this. But they ran into others that weren't as flat. The other doctors, although precise in language and maybe objective in thought, did have some emotional inflection in the way that they spoke. There is a, a separateness to the group that pulled them away from the rest of the cast. The purpose of that I couldn't quite get. I could stab at random theories. One could be that it was supposed to reflect the perspective of the doctor, Stephen Murphy. He's very objective, precise, looking at things in a scientific way. So his interpretation of his world shucks the emotion from people's experiences, although they might be displaying them. It wasn't interpreted from his experience. Complete guess. There's nothing about the movie that would suggest that. The movie isn't just solely from his first-person perspective. There's no structure of the film that would suggest that that was the intention. We could just come up with theories, but there wasn't anything that I could pull from the movie that would require that or to ask that. The movie suggests a former drinking problem. Dr. Murphy is a successfully recovered al alcoholic. I think he hadn't had a drink in three years. But when he lost this patient, he had had a couple of drinks that day. The whole family is very obedient, kind of like rule following. They, they go to bed at the right times before they have procedures the next day. They don't drink when they're at this party. The kids seem successfully oriented. So I don't know. The, the movie didn't make a lot of that alcoholism. But I guess ultimately it was a contributing factor in the death of Martin's father. And maybe we should go into the consequences of that dead patient for Dr. Murphy. I have an overarching theory or artery, if we want to use a medical term, to kind of give the purpose of movie. There are parts of the movie, such as the lack of emotionality that were throughout the film that could have had reason or purpose. But the, the part that felt most important was Dr. Murphy's refusal to take responsibility of choice or even action. It seemed like he didn't remember that he drank during the surgery or his drinking might have influenced the death of his patient. I disagree. I think that was a denial component. 
He was refusing to take responsibility for what he did, which then resulted in a death of a, of a patient. He displaces that to the anesthesiologist. That's convenient because then he doesn't have a sense of responsibility to it. Which is weird because he says the anesthesiologist is like his best friend and they, they hang out outside of work. And it seems odd that he would assign the blame to him with no nuance. True. I don't think he was assigning it to his friend, although it was his friend that did it. I think he was assigning it to the class of who is responsible under conditions that happens to be his friend. So his friend was at fault, but it was more of if a patient dies under conditions such as who is the person responsible, it's always the anesthesiologist. It's never the cardiologist or the or the surgeon. And so it's a categorical removal of responsibility, although his friend happens to be that person. This movie is trying to say something about the way doctors obviously sort of play God. They have life in their hands. And I don't know whether it's part of their training to distance themselves from bad outcomes, such as death of a patient. But Dr. Murphy's character, he um, it doesn't feel like an emotional burying or anything. He just really there's there's a, a forgetting a forgetting of the character who who was lost and no sense that that uh, that it even happened not not that he was like trying to avoid he knew it happened and he was trying to avoid blame for it it was just kind of an ignorance of the event itself I would take the side of denial I mean he also talked about going to the funeral and his wife saying I don't remember you going to a funeral or how come you didn't tell me about this funeral mm. and he's like oh I thought I invited you. His external world is keeping this information private from others. His internal world is to distance myself as far from this as I can. But it doesn't work out because the son of the patient he lost, Martin, has some kind of demonic ability. Would you characterize it that way? He goes after the children of Dr. Murphy, and there's a four-stage process. They're physical uh, forms deteriorate they are unable to walk they're sort of paralyzed from the waist down and that leads to not eating food so they're they're further deteriorate and then their eyes bleed that's the that's the last the last the stage before death i don't know if i categorize it as demonic i could see it being classified that way it felt more like if you were a teenager and you had to find out a way of evening an event or marking out what would be fair, that would be something a 14, 15 year old would come up with. Uh, how about, you know, they can't walk, then their eyes bleed and then they die. You know, it does have a sense of sinisterism as, as, as it is an event in which it would elicit a sense of dread and concern. And, but I, I don't think it was a demonic type device. It was more of a, if I had a, a, the powers to do so, how might I do it? Well, a teenager might determined that's how he would do it. So I would say it's, he just happens to have the power to elicit this. And the motivation is less, less uh, demonic and more adolescent. But Dr. Murphy also has choice. The affliction is going to befall not only his two children, but also eventually Nicole Kidman. And he, Dr. Murphy, gets to choose which of them, only one of them need die to compensate for the loss of the patient. Even though Nicole Kidman is never afflicted by any of it right and this goes back to the idea of the storyline is 100 percent around choice and responsibility is at one point nicole kidman says hmm you know what would be the best way to do this 
we can still have a kid. Let's choose the outcome here. Let's kill one of the kids and then have another one. I will, by choosing that, taking responsibility and owning it. He does not accept that as a possibility. And instead, kind of jumping to the end, he spins around randomly and kills one of them, not taking personal responsibility to that, leaving it up to chance. So even at the end of the movie, he's still unable to take responsibility for his actions. He himself isn't even subjected to the response of the curse, let's call it. He could go scot-free. It only affects those near him. As a consequence of his choice, there isn't a negative outcome to him as a, as a separate person. The movie suggests a connection to a Greek mythology and goes so far as to say that the daughter... There's a scene where they visit, mom and dad visit the, the school principal. The school principal mentions that the daughter had written a paper about this myth. So that, that's sort of a heavy suggestion that we're meant to connect that to the title, The Sacred Deer. And I, I suppose we should explain that myth. The myth is associated with the stories around the Trojan War. And the Greeks are assembling their armies to go to Troy to take the city and get Helen back, who was stolen and they all, all the Greek troops meet at a harbor on the east coast of Greece. And from there, they're going to coordinate and sail all over at once to maximize shock value. But there's no wind for their sailboats. And after several months, maybe, of waiting for a wind, they consult the gods about why there is no wind. Which god have we angered? And the religious priest who does the communicating, informs the Greek generals that it's Artemis, who is a goddess of the hunt and protector of deer and of forests and of the moon and of virginity and uh, a, a goddess associated with nature and virginity and femininity. And um, she, if uh, Artemis, wants a human sacrifice. She's, she's angry. She stopped the winds because Agamemnon, the head of the Greek forces, has unwittingly killed one of her favorite animals, this deer. And because of that sacred deer, Artemis demands that Agamemnon sacrifice his own daughter, who is Iphigenia. And that's what the paper was about, that the kid wrote. So dad writes back to mom in, in, in uh, Mycenae and says, hey, can you send the daughter over? I want to get her married to one of these robust Greek Officers, before I sail off to Troy, and mom is very excited and daughter is very excited. So daughter comes out to this harbor where the Greek army is and thinking she's going to get married. And they go through a whole fake marriage process, bride and groom and priest and flowers and all that. And then at the height of the ceremony, instead of, you know, a ring and I take thee for my lovely wife, um, dad grabs her and the other Greek generals grab her and drag her over to an altar and slit her throat. And then everybody gets the wind and goes on to Troy. I, I see the connection with the title, obviously. And obviously there's an idea of we have to sacrifice one of our kids in this movie, although mom doesn't fit that. But there's no there's no further interplay with the myth, as far as I can tell. There's no analog to the war with Troy. There's no analog to a failing wind that is needed. There's no god or goddess, unless this is supposed to be Martin, who has been wronged. The sin was losing a patient on the operating table for which no one claims responsibility or no one even remembers. The death is just kind of lost, lost in a bureaucratic muddle, like the anesthesiologist doesn't remember it until he's prompted to. And 
and uh, Dr. Murphy has no idea of it. So the director is Greek. So maybe that gives him some permission to, to be clapped at for referencing a Greek myth. The reviews that I read sort of said, ooh, this is neat. This is intellectual because it references a myth. But there's no exercising of the, of the connection as far as I could tell. So that was a little bit frustrating. I had the same experience in review of plot and comparison of myth that only a small section was similar. The motivation, the climax, all the pieces that give the myth drama weren't um, illustrated in the movie. Okay, ignore that in a sense. And this is kind of my process here in reflection of the movie. It was, I felt like I was shucking a corn. It was like, okay, there's this full item here that looks like it has value to it. And then you start pulling it apart and you're like, okay, well, what's left? And the only item that I found to be consistent or at least weighty was the idea of lack of responsibility and inability to make choice. And that themed throughout the main character's existence. And the uh, other parts were just much like yourself running in the woods naked, just mm. shimmery objects to look at. <laughs> but with no real substance, at least from what I saw, you know what I'm saying? It was a funny angle and you're running away from me. So by scale, things may look smaller than in real life. But <laughs> now, Speaking of, of shimmering visions, I, I thought it was cool how every, I think every shot in the hospital and only every shot in the hospital, not outside the hospital was kind of this elevated. You were, you were following behind whoever was walking down a hallway at maybe 20 feet and you were sort of up at like twice human height, kind of looking down on him. There was a separation from the characters who were in the hospital during the hospital scenes. And I thought that was just the fact that that was consistently done. I thought was cool, maybe to reflect the emotional distance that Dr. Murphy has to take from all the suffering happening around him. I don't know, but that was a, a neat visual thing. I also thought the music was quite good. Not really the music, but the sounds. There were a couple of times where it was like, piano key screeching kind of kind of stereotypical uh, tension music but other times i thought it was pretty subtle and um un, uh, not unnerving i wasn't scared of this movie at all um not even visually kind of disturbed the only scene i kind of cringed at was when martin was strapped in that chair and bit his own arm did you have any other kind of visceral reaction to this movie the sound or the visuals or the guy running the violin got a little excited at a few times <laughs> and uh, was a little overdone, but overall it was pretty tempered. I would say that there was a, a feeling of dread as time went on and things deteriorated and a curiosity as to what character might do what next. But that's pretty common with most, well, I'd put this more in a suspense category film. Yeah, I'm not even sure why he bit his arm. We'll just call him the, the God kid bit his arm, you know, like what was yeah. it supposed to accomplish? Do you have a theory on that? No, I, I remember at the time he was kept repeating, like, this is all metaphorical. This is all metaphorical. And I was like, what, what is this movie becoming? Like, I don't know. So no, I don't. I also don't understand the whole scene where Martin invites Dr. Murphy over to Martin's house and Martin, Martin's mom is there and <laughs> makes a pass at him and tries to get him to have sex and gets really upset that he won't eat dessert. And I, I don't know what, if he's like some kind of cosmic justice, sort of a tit for tat, sort of old Testament, you know, someone died on my side, someone has to die on your side. What does that have to do with getting him into his house and watching Groundhog Day and eating dessert and potentially shacking up with his mom? You know who that was? 
Yeah, <laughs> I found out after I... Alicia Silverstone. Yeah, of... <laughs> Sounds Swiss, baby, yeah. <laughs> she didn't uh, grow into her teeth. She had, like, little dolphin teeth, but... Um, <laughs> anyways, so here's the summary. I'm going to pull the curtain back here, Brian. So, yeah, so there's a, there are two gods here at play. The teenage god who is exacting justice based on a wrong he's experienced in the only way he knows how to do it, adolescent and primitive. And then there's this mortal god, which is the doctor who has committed sin. And he is, through his own stubbornness, is not willing to accept fully what he's done for his payment. And so he's slip sliding through this process of, I'm refusing to accept this, both psychologically and behaviorally and outcome-based. I'll try and deny it. That's the, that's the mortal or sort of maybe of earth God, because he's the doctor and people think of doctors in that way. And then an un unevenness here with the adolescent who really has no power, typically in a mortal type world. He's young, doesn't have any money, doesn't have any power, as one might think traditionally within a typical sort of society. So then he's given these powers to exact fairness as he would see it in his eyes. And then these two main characters and the tension between the two of them is kind of the plot line. Yeah, and there's clearly something supernatural about Martin. He doesn't seem to do anything to enact the deterioration on the kid's part. He doesn't look at them cross-eyed or touch them in some way. He is invited over to their house and meets them and develops a relationship with the daughter, Kim, but there's no causative, as far as I can tell, thing that he does to start the deterioration. So he's kind of like this supernatural agent, but I felt like some other vengeful nemesis force was supposed to be channeling through him, but there's no suggestion of that from the movie. He also is not upset by the loss of his dad. Doesn't seem emotionally crippled by it. There's no, no emotion in the whole movie. There's one scene where I'll just call him the adolescent God is eating spaghetti the thing that he remarks as being most important to him was that someone told him that he ate spaghetti much like his dad did. And the adolescent then at that point felt this sense of attachment and symbolic representation in his dad or vice versa. And that provided him with maybe a sense of pride or a sense of excitement, or I'm not sure exactly. But either way, he then found out, well, everyone eats spaghetti this way so it's extremely common and so then he said something along the lines that that was more disappointing than the death of his own dad yeah what kind of uh, weight that we're supposed to take from that i don't know but um uh i i took that as so i don't know so i kind of have that theory of, around the two myths of gods that are kind of playing against each other creating drama within the plot line the removal, I think, of the emotion is to give focus to the dialogue itself or to maybe not to contaminate other parts of the movie. This is just an idea. That sort of spaghetti speech suggested that his feeling of being uniquely human provided him with a sense of emotion more than the loss of another major figure in his life kind of gave a sense of the cheapness of life or the 
disposability of of life in general, and maybe that had some value. I don't know. Yeah, there's a a quote that I read about. I mentioned the movie. I mean, the camera angles in the hospital. This is a quote. Most of the movie is set at the hospital where Stephen works and where his family is later treated. It's a beautiful, gleaming facility replete with long corridors. In shot after shot, the director's camera glides behind Stephen like it's silently stalking him, an angel of death ready to tap on his shoulder. This movie is about the moment that tap finally comes, and the film could even be interpreted as a drama about the mysteriousness of illness and death and the stifling nature of hospitals. I wanted this movie to be more about that, the suffering that takes place in hospitals, but the heartlessness of the characters just made it hard to connect with. And the kids, too. They're just these well-behaved little kids who speak in complete sentences and apologize for their mistakes. It was just hard to connect with any any character emotionally or care about them at all. But another one, this was a little a little more critical of review. I quote, stop me if you've heard this one. The members of an upstanding upper middle class nuclear family are terrorized by a malign force. Their suffering is not entirely arbitrary because not all of them are completely innocent. Their tormentor meets out a cruel and disproportionate kind of justice and revels in the punishment. Meanwhile, the audience squirms in complicity, taking both masochistic and sadistic pleasure at a game of cat and mouse in which the roles keep shifting. I'll stop now. It isn't quite fair to say with respect to Lanthimos's The Killing of a Sacred Deer that you've seen it all before, but if you were intrigued, unnerved, and tickled by his earlier films, you might be surprised and a little disappointed to find him traipsing over such familiar territory. So there's another bit of a more critical review. That was the only movie review that uh, was a bit bit critical. I just felt like this movie was, it didn't explain itself. It didn't talk about the background, why Dr. Murphy has this relationship with Martin, how they came to meet each other. And I get that you want to leave some mysteries for the audience to construct answers for in their mind, but there's no explanation of what the vengeful force is, um, how it's enacted. It's just like, I feel like this movie was two hands off and I, I can't really forgive it for that reason. There's no, there's nothing to hook my interest. There's not enough given to help me to understand. And maybe that's the intention, right? Maybe death when it comes and, and does its little tap on our shoulder is unexplicable and all that. And, and that's, that's a neat idea, but yeah, I just have this reaction to this movie that it's like, it didn't do enough to justify itself. I'd like to give the content creator some level of grace. And in order for me to do that, I have to provide some purpose as to what their reasons were in creating the movie as they did. The reason why there was this flatness of emotion from the characters and the plot line, although unbelievable, was relatable considering that your family members might be dying, that there's some action you did that will provide a consequence later. And the only choices you have are terrible choices. So those are, those are situations that are accessible by pretty much everyone. And so then with the reduction of the emotionality of the characters in the movie, it requires the participation of the audience member to puppet those characters themselves with their own emotions. So it's uh, almost like a sandbox or a, an empty template in which 
I need to step into these characters and I need to step into the movie experience and and fully animate the characters on my own. It's a, it's a movie I need to participate in. It's not a movie that is giving me what I need and I leave with the full package. It's, wow, this is relatable. I can understand a situation such as this. It's as emotionally, emotional sort of radiance that comes out and I can feel that. Okay, but there's nothing else here. Everything else, there's lots of missing parts here. Okay, well, I can participate. I can play this game. I need to step into this movie and play with it. In fact, I'm the one that's supposed to be animating some of these parts that are missing. You leave the movie and there's little nuggets of information, such as the reference to myth and such. But there's not enough there for you to leave the movie and say, oh, I know exactly what this guy was doing. I, I, I can fully explain why this happened and that happened. It's more of fill in the blank. You provide the other half of this movie. I've only given you the structure to attach to. Now you fill out the rest. I don't agree that a director can make a half-made movie and get away with it. I guess I, I just disagree with you there. Yeah, I, I guess it just depends on what is the movie. What is the purpose of having the movie? Am I here to be entertained? Am I here to have a coherent plot line? Get into this sort of idea of the movie itself being a piece of art. It's like, it isn't necessarily the artist's responsibility to communicate all these things to me. All he or she needs to do is create something, and then I can either interact with it or not. Whether I, I like or dislike it or feel it's coherent or not, that's not really the the creator's responsibility. I mean, if it's someone who's trying to like sell tickets to make money, then the person who produced the movie might say, this needs to be more coherent because I need to sell tickets. But as a viewer, I could watch a series of flashing lights and then someone come in and, and just scream <laughs> at me for 20 minutes. And I can say, that is art. I can't say whether that is art for me, but it exists and it was created. I don't think that art is like this medium, this background, which encompasses everything that I don't understand. Just because I don't understand it doesn't mean it becomes art. You see what I'm saying? Like, it seems like you're defining art as like this big black canvas and you, you've got a small circle in your field of focus, which you do understand and appreciate and get. And everything that isn't in your field of focus and understandable, you, you call art. What I'm saying is that I don't have to constrain art to either of those categories. Art can be completely compre comprehensible and transparent and extremely simple, and that's totally fine. It also can be completely inaccessible, but whether it's accessible or not, I can't define it differently just because I don't understand it. So I'm not necessarily saying that. So I'm not saying it has to be in either category. I'm saying it exists in both categories. I would frame it like communication. If I go up to you and try to get a message across to you, I have to speak clearly. My words have to make sense. There has to be content. And then I often do lots of follow-up to make sure that you've understood. Communication breaks down when either I don't deliver the message clearly or you don't receive the message clearly. So mm -hmm. I sat here for two hours, watched this movie. I took notes. I read reviews. I know that I know the myth and I have a sympathetic posture towards this movie. Like I, I want to be impressed. I want to be taken somewhere. I want to be uh, shown something. So the audience member was present. The movie did not make the message clear. The movie did not do its part. And I don't then say, well, it's art. No, I say the communication broke down. It's a bad movie. That, that's how I view it. You can totally, and anyone else can evaluate the movie, but it doesn't remove 
that it is a piece of art, whether it's coherent or not. It's kind of what I'm saying. I guess what I'm saying is that the artist doesn't have a, doesn't have any responsibility to me as the consumer of the art. I can create art in my house and burn it. No one sees it. It's still art. As, as soon as it's created, it becomes art, whether one looks at it and even cares about it or understands it. It's irrelevant. I don't have to even show it to anybody. So an audience is unnecessary. I guess I, I would disagree. I think an art work to be art has to have an appreciative audience. If it's all just arting into the void and no one likes it or is moved by it or even knows it exists in your example, then it's not art. Hmm. Yeah, I would disagree. I could make a, a beautiful painting, look at it and say, wow, this is art. And then I burn it. No one else saw it. It's still art. That, that would be my definition, though. I think the, that the audience has to be part of the conversation for, for it to equal art. I rely on these critics often because I'm, I'm open to the possibility that I just didn't get it. You know, I, I'm not like prideful about that. I, I need to learn more. I need to read something. So I go and read these reviews. These people are paid and professional art critics, uh, movie critics. And all they can say is he talked about the myth of Iphigenia. Or he has made other good movies. They don't present a coherent reason why I should have filled. What gaps did I miss that I need to fill in that I could have an appreciative audience reaction to this movie? They don't do that for me. So after three or four of those failures, I, I cross it off my art list. That's my process with this film. Um, if, if a professional appreciative audience member, I'm talking about the movie critic, mm-hmm. can't convince me that here's what you missed Brian, and here's here's the missing pieces, and here's why it's art. Um, if they don't convincingly make that argument, then I just don't take it any further. Interesting. It actually that actually plays into the movie a little bit. This goes back into the responsibility of choice. There's an offsetting to a professional, and that professional then has the final say or has a a capability that is put on a pedestal and if he or she isn't able to determine the solution then there must not be one and so in this movie here there's a lot of push off into the doctors where it's like we need to run more tests you need to figure it out in fact at one point dr murphy refers to his wife and she has a medical opinion and he's like i don't care about your medical opinion because you didn't study medicine you're not an expert so your opinion means nothing to me and so this sort of idea of expert role trumps all is also kind of a theme through this movie. The one thing that was kind of disappointing was when they started talking about it being psychosomatic, they didn't talk to any psychiatrists. That kind of bothered mm. me a little bit. Where there's this <laughs> opportunity where, okay, this could be psychosomatic. All the medical doctors, at least in a sort of typical sort of medical field, says, no, all the tests come back. There's nothing going on with him biologically, let's say. And then it's like, it could be psychosomatic. And he's like, ah, I'm not even going to investigate that side. He could have called a psychiatrist, had someone come in, do an evaluation, sharpen that tool, that professional tool, and see if there's some some substance to that diagnosis or some solution within that intervention. But he totally disregarded that. So he didn't consult widely enough, a wide enough field of experts? He completely discounted the psychology section of possible solution or intervention. Yeah. And there was that scene where 
out in front of the hospital and one of his doctor buddies says, you know, we've kind of paraphrasing, like we've done all we can. We've run all the tests. We can't make heads or tails of it. They should probably just go home. And so there, there was a, an expression of wisdom there, despite all the expertise, you know, a humility that we've done everything we can. We've ruled out this, that, and the other. We really don't know what it is. So at this point, we're turning to sort of palliative care, comfort care, and making sure that your kids are at home and and not in a clinical setting in their final days or whatever. Uh, so the expertise is uh, something that this movie dwells on. And when it's exhausted, you you sort of give up <laughs> to, to close the loop on what I think you're trying to say about, about my comments about the art of this movie. <laughs> yeah. And that kind of pushes into that idea that I mentioned earlier about the gods on earth would be the doctors as the other side of this wrestling match between the adolescent God and the adult sort of Which moral you, God. I like this idea of the adolescent God, but is that just a thought of yours or was that something that you got from the movie? Because he had these powers and they didn't appear to be sinister. Like, I mean, they, they were of a nature in which there was a negative outcome, someone dying, but he had superhuman powers, you know, powers beyond any mortal person would. And his rationale wasn't backwards in a sense. It's like, you killed my dad. All right. Well, you have to kill one of your family members to make it even. And you know what? It's up to you to make this choice. You're the one that created the sin. Now you must choose your own remedy. That sort of felt like the other side of the tension between the two main leads. The whole thing about doctors playing God, we have that we have that phrase in English, and certainly they have a lot of responsibility when they're operating on someone, especially an open heart surgery or whatever. But that definition of God, when we say doctors play God, that means doctors have a lot of power. Doctors need to be careful. Doctors do an incredible amount of good. Sure, there's the occasional malpractice or, or death, unwarranted death on the operating table, but to say that they're like analogous to or or in conflict with some with this uh, Martin kid who's like a demonic Old Testament kind of vengeful spirit, that's not the same definition I would I would give to the word God. It's not like I don't know. That just didn't work for me in the movie. The whole God versus God thing that you're trying to propose. I would agree that there is a disproportionate amount of power that a society might give to a doctor that is, we're instilling that in you because it makes us feel a little bit more comfortable. And the decisions you make do have a life and death type outcome, but you're in no way a god. Far from it, actually. But if one was to review all humans and professions on earth, that would be the one that might symbolically rise to that caliber out of the assortments that are there. We're kind of giving that power to that figure, but they don't actually have it. And then you have this adolescent who has zero power as a 13, 14 year old, and he actually does have that authority or has that ability to create godlike intervention, which then results in someone essentially dying beyond mortal means. It's as even as one can get within the material that they're working from. If there was some possibility that the human could be a god, then that character might fit better, but that doesn't exist. So this is closest we could come up with. And then what might be a, a form of tension that that character could run into? Well, how about someone who has no power? All right, an adolescent kid. And all of a sudden we give him the power that he can fix a problem that, that kind of was laid, at his, laid in his lap, which is the death of his dad. All right, well, how would a 
14, 15 year old determine this? I, I don't know. They might come up with bleeding eyes and maybe you can't walk, you know, this sort of like juvenile sense of justice. I do think it's interesting how doctors and hospitals have all these legal defenses against malpractice lawsuits and stuff. You know, I don't know the, the details, but there's a sense in which doctors are protected from the consequences of their mistakes. So it, I think it would have been neat if, or neater if they had gone into that a little bit more, but he didn't even remember committing this, whatever happened that this guy died. There's no background information. There's no real deep dive into the alcohol problem. There's no flashback of him like slipping with the knife and therefore he was guilty. There's no play with guilt and innocence on his part. I think it would have been neat if, if they had shown something about like the son, Martin, or him and his mom trying to get accountability through, uh, I don't know, a lawsuit or just asking the, the hospital for a clear accounting of what happened or going to the news media or something. But instead, it's the, there's none of that side of, I think, would have been an interesting angle to take. Like, how are doctors, not only how are they trained emotionally to get over these kind of accidents and, and to maintain their professional reputations, uh, maybe among their colleagues, like talk about the ultimate sort of bad review, you know, what, how is all that handled? How are deaths in hospitals handled in terms of a doctor's reputation among his fellow doctors, among, for the hospital's reputation for, um, and, and uh, did they have to go to like trainings or re reboard? Like <laughs> you could take it too far, but it's like, there's a lot of, there's a lot, like you could get lost in the bureaucratic sure. jungle yeah. and at least That's that a totally different something. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's, it's a totally different movie. And I would say that feels like it's way too on the nose. It's like, it's too much information, too much detail. It, you know, this, this is sort of the, the sandbox that the director created. And I come in here and play with these toys that you've, you haven't given enough texture to, to which they dominate me. They're here for me to project my own thoughts and interests on, and I can interact with them in a sense. As your earlier point was around the idea that this doctor just forgot. I want to highlight that he didn't forget. When prompted by his wife, he had all the information. He spilled yeah, it. Right. So it was just that he was avoiding it, suppressing it, denying it, these types of things, because he knew he had been drinking and he shouldn't have been drinking. Some sort of black and white thinking of a doctor is never responsible for the death of a, of a patient. You've essentially absolved yourself of everything. And I think that, you know, that's another sort of protective mechanism where, well, now, now I, I, I've removed all responsibility because no doctors uh, are responsible. I'm a doctor. Therefore, I'm not responsible for this. A cleansing of responsibility and then back into the idea of inability to make choice and the distress that comes from it. Do you like deer meat, John? Only if it's been dried and uh, salted by uh, human skin. If you squeeze some sock sweat into a little container and uh, cure the deer meat that way, that sounds tasty. I'll, I'll get on that and we'll, we'll have a feast later and then we won't talk about it emotionally. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, we'll bury it deep. All right, sir. Well, right. Uh, I'm sorry you have to carry this deer on your back for the next uh, four or five miles, but this is your own doing. All right. Well, I got to take responsibility. I can't blame, can't blame you.